turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Welcome to another episode of the Michelle Tafoya podcast brought to you by Genucel. We thank them for their sponsorship. Please subscribe so you never miss an episode. You won't want to miss today's. Her name has been all over the news and she joins us. She's a friend of mine. We have something in common. We both worked in sports. Sage Steele, former anchor on ESPN, joins us next. Welcome to the Michelle Tafoya podcast. Well, if you haven't heard of Sage Steele, it won't be long before you do. She is a former anchor from ESPN, worked on all the major sports, golf, NBA, NFL. She covered a little bit of everything and then found herself in a bit of controversial hot water. We're going to go through her story. She recently reached a settlement with ESPN, but she's allowed to say whatever she wants. That was part of her settlement. So we're going to talk. We're going to explain exactly what happened at ESPN that got her into these hot waters, if you will. And some of it may really, really surprise you. I'm excited to speak with my good friend, Sage Steele, next. Sage Steele joins us, I mean, really just days after settling with ESPN and leaving the network she had been known for and they had been known for her. And here she is. It's great to see you, my friend. I'm so happy to see you, Michelle. Uh, likewise. When, when did you start working at ESPN? 2007. And I was thinking about this the other day because my kids were 11 months old, two and four. And now they're 17, 19, and 21. So this is all they've ever known is me right. at ESPN living in Connecticut. And so there's there's a lot of changes going on right now. A lot of interesting conversations in the house. <laughs> I bet. I can't believe you started with three kids that small. I, I can't you know, either. That is, yeah. Why don't we just, you know, have three little ones and then just <laughs> start a job at a, at a sports network. Um, you remember your first day on the job and it, it, I'd love to hear for the listeners to hear the story because <laughs> what they what a lot of people don't realize is how you get put through a meat grinder and everyone has a bad early moment. I, I've got a list of them saved, but <laughs> let's hear your first day at ESPN. Uh, definitely the worst. My worst day at ESPN was my first day. And I wasn't supposed to be on the air for like another month of, of training that was supposed to take place. And, and, um, Neil Everett called in sick. We love Neil. And um, he just was suddenly ill. And they said, hey, you're here training and observing Jay Harris. And so they said, well, you do the 6 p.m. Sports Center. Michelle, I knew I wasn't ready. Like, I totally knew. But what do you do? You say no? You can't of course say not. No. You got to no. go. The problem <laughs> is that it was the first Thursday of the men's NCAA basketball tournament. And, you know, the day that people, men across the country, call in sick to watch yeah. all of the games. Or they um, schedule their vasectomies for that yeah. weekend. Exactly, with the frozen peas. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe that's what Neil did that day. No, I'm kidding. But, <laughs> but honestly, I, it was that first day, and it was the 6 p.m. Sports Center prime time, and, and a one-hour show went, uh, that rundown went out the window, and it was extended to two hours and 45 minutes. 
of chaos. And that's a hard show when you're a vet, much less when it's your first day. Everything's a hard show at ESPN. I mean, we, it's so highly produced. Uh, we have the best, we, sounds weird. Uh, they have the best crews. Um, and I, yeah, so first day and I walked in there clueless and I had never met Dick Vitale or Digger Phelps and the segment did not go well. And Dick gave me a hard time and I cussed him out and I had to ask for forgiveness later. And, I, and, I, and, and then Digger was like, what the hell's going on around here? And yelling and screaming. I was, I looked at him and I was like, thank you. It's not just, yeah. I got off yeah. the set and Jay Harris, God bless him. He just hugged me because there were tears and the bosses called me in and some bosses said things that um, I will never forget and always use as motivation. And another one was incredible and really saved me because I was, a, it was spiraling downhill quickly on my very first day. Um, what he said and owned the mistake that they'd made to put me in that position, that actually saved me. It's the only thing that saved me because it, it took about two years to get my confidence out of the toilet. Um, and I guess I can laugh about that day now because I, I obviously survived, but it was, oh, it was devastating. I, I can't underscore enough to people how much grit and thick skin one needs to endure this profession oh. because every mistake you make is made in front of a network sports network audience. Everyone sees it. There are critics who will write about it. There are moments that just absolutely gouge your confidence, but obviously you survive. You are a survivor. Um, things seem to change in sports in general. And uh, I guess at ESPN, you know, you, what was sort of the first, cause then you, you did, you just grew, you blossomed, you, you, I don't even remember that. So for whatever it's worth, Sage, I don't remember your mistake on the air. Um, but you, you blossomed, you grew, you, you came into being this, everyone knew your name. And, and so, but then this, these weird speed bumps started popping up. When did you notice that maybe there was a something awry between you and the network? Uh, there were a couple of moments in hindsight, you know, now I can look back and say, oh, that was a red flag. This one is, it was pretty obvious though. And this is in 2016. Um, I was hosting NBA countdown and had moved my family out to the West coast to Scottsdale, Arizona, um, to be closer to our Los Angeles studios. They didn't want to, didn't want to bring three teenagers to LA. So, um, and I was working Thursday to Sunday. So I would just hop over on the plane, 45 minutes to Burbank. And, um, but I suddenly got a call in August of gosh, it's exactly seven years ago, right? August of 2016 saying, uh, we need you to come out to New York and meet with John Skipper, the president of the network at the time. And, um, I didn't know why my agent and I, Nick Khan at the time d didn't know why, um, at least I, we were told that they didn't know why and uh, went out there. And long story short, they told me that they were removing me from NBA countdown. Um, I, I was devastated because I, I had heard nothing but good things. And we'd made a lot of progress despite some show changes after that first season when Bill Simmons was there. Um, and that's, that's a story for a chapter in the book. Uh, but survive that. I can't wait for your book. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, let me tell you, there won't be coffee in this. There'll be something else in this yeah. when, we, when it's yeah. being written. Um, basically, I, I couldn't understand why. I'm like, what, what, what did what I did do? What did they tell you? What was their reasoning? We were at a lunch and it was John Skipper and Connor Shell, 
uh, who's no longer with the network either. Um, and, and I, and they start to say, Hey, we have this wonderful idea. We want you to host sports around the road and you can do the masters and the world series and the end, you know, still NBA finals and the Super Bowl and be our lead host for sports around the road across the country. Um, this is what we want you to do. And I said, but what about the NBA? And they said, well, you know, we're, we're not sure we're going to make some changes there, but this is what we want for you. And it sounded great. And then I said, I, I need you to answer a question. What did I do or not do? Why are you making this change? And they wouldn't answer. I looked at Connor because he was the one that was making the decision, uh, I was told. And he had no answer. And then Skipper looked at me and said, um, here's what he's trying to say. You know, we just are making some changes and, and a lot of things are up in the air. Um, and, and, I, and I looked at him and I <laughs> recapped a story from my very first day uh, on NBA Countdown where it was a huge meeting at the ABC offices in New York um, with everybody, the entire crew, producers, uh, all of the head bosses at ESPN and, um, and went into what that meeting was like and how, hey, you're great and come on in and, oh, we have this Bill Simmons and, you know, we'll talk about all this, but just good luck and go. And that was in October of... 2013. And that was the last I ever heard from any of those bosses. And so three years later, when I had been kind of dumped out in Los Angeles and three years later um, to just be plucked off of it. And then a couple months later saying, we're going to have to move your family back to the East coast and come back to sports center and back to, there was just so much confusion. Um, they ended up putting Michelle Beadle on the show. Um, and, you know, I, I'd known for a while that, that there were some relationships kind of in the background that, um, we're working against me and friendships that I didn't know about. Um, and they made that change and she was on for a couple of years and then made some changes. And then she was gone. So there's been a lot of things in hindsight that I look back and go, Oh my goodness, I should have known. I should have known. I should have known. Um, but I was naive, but that was the first thing that was a personal thing. And that really, really affected, um, my family, um, and some of the promises that they had made. So that was devastating, but I will say this till the day I die, Michelle, every one of these things has happened for a reason. Every one of these things were the right thing for me now in hindsight. I wouldn't change a thing, even the things that really ticked me off. And there's a lot and there's a lot more detail that someday I'll share. Yeah. But I, I wouldn't change it because I wouldn't be here today and I wouldn't have begun to find the strength and the voice that I, that I have now. It just took a lot of crap along the way. called Provia. This is for your hair because there are millions of American men and women who have thinning hair. Their hair is falling out, maybe even prematurely, or they, you know, they go, it runs in the family. My, my mom had thinning hair. Well, if you're one of those people, Provia is for you. This is a real solution that delivers on its promise without harsh side effects, without the awful smell, without unwanted chemicals. This is uh, from our friends that developed Genucel Skincare, of which you know I'm a huge fan. Provia uses a safe, natural ingredient, Procapil, to effectively target the three main causes of premature, premature hair thinning and loss. By supporting healthy scalp circulation, the delivery of nourishing nutrients, and healthy hair follicle anchoring to your scalp, Provia guarantees more hair on your head than in the shower or on your comb. Effective for men and women of any age and safe on colored, treated, and styled hair. It's that easy. And right now, new customers save over 50% off Provia's introductory package at proviahair.com slash Michelle, P-R-O-V-I-A, 
hair.com slash Michelle. Every package includes a full 60-day supply of Provia Serum for daily use, plus Provia 30 Super Concentrate for faster, more noticeable results. Provia works guaranteed or 100% of your money back. See results for yourself right now. Don't wait. ProviaHair.com slash Michelle. P-R-O-V-I-A Hair.com slash Michelle with one L. ProviaHair.com slash M-I-C-H-E-L-E. So you get invited on Jay Cutler's show. Jay Cutler, for people who don't know, former NFL quarterback. Um, what, what, what did you guys talk about that inflamed ESPN so much? Well, I guess it depends on when you ask. Because at first, um, the biggest issue was my comments on the vaccine mandate. So this is two years ago. This is September of 21. And, uh, you know, we had all gotten an email and many reminders about the requirement that we were vaccinated. And I was not happy. And many were not happy. So I'm, I'm not alone with that, no. for sure. Um, but uh, I was I had waited until the very last second to get it. Like the last day that I could have gotten the vaccine in order to be fully vaccinated by their deadline, September 30th, um, I waited because I wasn't going to do it. I just was scared. And all I wanted was just more information and more time and more research because this thing had been shoved down our throats so quickly. And as a mother as well, and with three kids, but two daughters, you know, and we don't know what this means for reproductive systems. Like, like right. I just, I just didn't want to. Um, and so that was the first thing when I said, um, I made it very clear. I said, listen, I respect everybody's opinions. You know, I, the vast majority of my family, probably 98% vaccinated. Um, and so I respect everybody's opinions for me. I didn't want it. And I didn't want to be told that I had to do something to my body that I wasn't okay with period, but I had to do it in order to keep my job, a job that I absolutely loved until the very last day I was on the air a couple of weeks ago. Um, and a job that I needed as the, you know, sole provider, I'm, you know, I'm divorced and their father's certainly here in town and in the picture, but, um, it's a hundred percent financially on me. So I had to have this job, Michelle. And I believe they, you know, they knew that. Um, so I, I just was honest and I just said to each his own, here's the thing. I had come directly from getting the shop. Like I had, I had sprinted from the stupid grocery store parking lot home and flipped up the laptop on my, um, the, the thing on my laptop to do the, the zoom with Jay. And I had forgotten there was a bandaid on my shoulder. Like I, I was rushing and I was mad and I'd been yeah. emotional that I'd had to get it. So I just said, listen, I think it's uh, sick and scary for any company to mandate this, but you know, Disney is a global company. I was not surprised. They were one of many, um, but I still thought it was wrong. And I, and I complied and I, I thought the fact that I was complying, I could still have an opinion because uh, <laughs> I'm following the rules, but um, no. apparently not. Apparently that's, that's going out the window and you're not alone. Uh, you weren't alone. And in retrospect, you know, I think there are a lot of people who don't care what vaccine comes out next. They don't want to get it. Yeah. You know, they don't want to get, they don't want to be compelled to put a needle in their body and inject in, you know, a product for which the makers are not liable if there's any issue with it. They don't. That's the scary part. It is. That there's no liability for Pfizer, for Moderna, for anyone if there's a vaccine injury. And how about the fact that um, we know it doesn't prevent 
you from receiving it or transmitting it. Correct. We know that the masks don't work. So for all of these people who said, follow the science for all this time. And at first we all were, okay, well, I'll do whatever you say. Keep right. my neighbors safe, my family safe, my kids safe, you safe. Um, we know now by listening to their science that none of it works. Right. So therefore I don't want it. Leave me alone, stay away from me. If you wanna take 10 of them and wear 16 masks on the plane, go for it. I, I, I might <laughs> laugh at you a little bit under my breath, but that, that's your right. Like, but leave me alone and leave my kids alone and leave my family alone. Another thing that you and I have in common is we both participated at The View. Uh, you know, I did, <laughs> I did it about a year or so ago. You did it prior to, uh, you were there when Barbara Walters was still there. Uh, and how many times did you do that show? Four times. Four times. I, I probably did it five or six, but we're, we're, we're both veterans of this thing. You got shoved by Barbara Walters? <laughs> I'm laughing at what that turned into because, yeah, when I was talking to Megan Kelly, it was just a, a funny comment I had made in between, like, oh, yeah, and then she shoved. Yes. I mean, Barbara didn't like what I had said, and it was all about, you know, race stuff and and um, shouldn't like that I, I chose to to really claim both my white mom's side and my black dad's side. And um, But yeah, I did. The thing is, I wasn't saying, <laughs> then I see this headline, I think it was in Variety, and they're like, Sage Steele says Barbara Walters assaulted her. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is why people don't trust the media because you, you make crazy headlines for clicks. I never said, I was laughing about it. I mean, she was testy all the way up to, to the end and it was an honor to be on with all of them. I'm gonna tell you, Whoopi was so nice to me. Jenny McCarthy was great to me. I love her, I respect her. By the way, Dr. Jenny McCarthy, 10, 15 years ago about vaccines, right? Yeah. Uh, Shepard was wonderful. Like, I loved that. They were so kind to me, even with that situation. But I was laughing about it and people make it this big. And you're talking about a woman who's not no longer here and you're accusing her. Get a life. Yeah. Stop it. it was funny. A lot of people witnessed it. It was funny. I thought this woman just and I laughed and I was like, I wish I'd done on video. It's kind of cool. It, it's yeah. I mean, that's like a notch in your belt, you know, of, of things that you that's a good piece of scar tissue right there. She, Barbara Walters asked you something like, well, on a census form, what would you check? What the hell kind of question is that? I mean, did, were, what did you, what was your inner reaction to just that question? I, I don't know how well I handled it. I just was like, well, what do you, what do you mean? And I was like, I haven't filled out a census form in a really long time. I, I don't even know what the options are, but I would check both or none, I'm not gonna be forced to choose. I'll say this, in the makeup room right before, Sherry had come to me and said, hey, I was reading about the biracial and the importance of, of you um, you know, claiming that, and can, do you mind if we ask that? I was like, no, sure. And again, she was wonderful. Yeah. Um, and, and I said, sure, of course, Like, why wouldn't I talk about that? So I didn't know what was going there, and that was, in, and that was Barbara's specific question. Uh, and I just was in awe that it was a problem She's the one that brought up Barack Obama, not me. Right. She's like, well, the president identifies as black. And I'm like, well, good for him. You do. Yeah. I don't I don't care. And then I did say the joke that I've used, and I don't know how funny it is, but I thought it was clever. I'm like, I'm like, well, I'm pretty sure my white mom was there the day I was born. So I I I really think she's important too. And honestly, I will I'll never stop saying this. I'm the luckiest person alive, I think, one of many, of course, but because I had the best of both worlds. 
I grew up with the most beautifully blended family, knowing that they all loved me equally, white, black, like it just didn't matter. We have pictures from our family reunions back in the day, our pre-COVID days, you know, when we'd all get together and there'd be uh, neighbors and friends, but all the family. And if you didn't know us and you walked by the picture, you'd be like, I don't understand. (laughs) (laughs) And there's, you know, more black men than white women, like all the kids and a couple were adopted and we were a melting pot. Isn't that America? Isn't that what we want? Isn't that what we, we are so proud of in this country? And I don't know why she felt the need at that time to say, well, this is how you're, and the president does this. That's his choice. Yeah. And I do think it's interesting how he chose, despite how he was raised. I mean, he, he wrote a black, he wrote a book on, on his father and him not being there when he was a kid. It broke my heart. It breaks my heart that what 70 some percent of African American kids are born without to to a single mother without a father that's fully present. That's something that I'm very passionate about. I want to talk more about and the why behind it and how do we help and how do we fix it? But to to not have the conversation and to silence people because they don't identify how you think they should, you're actually the problem. Well, I hope you love the podcast every day, sponsored by Genucel. Thank you, Genucel. But I think you're going to really, especially like today's podcast. Jonathan Isaac is a forward for the Orlando Magic. What else makes him unique? He was the only NBA player to stand during the anthem and not wear a Black Lives Matter t-shirt. You get drafted in 2017, some injury issues come up. 2020, you guys moved into the bubble, the NFL. We didn't have fans in the stands in the NFL either. And the George Floyd thing happens here where I live in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And BLM, Black Lives Matter, becomes this massive, it comes a rallying cry, but also there's this organization. So there are kind of two parts to BLM. Right. How did you at that time view those two kind of separate BLM mantras, if you will? Well, first off, thank you so much for having me. Yes. Uh, When it comes to the two, uh, obviously, the first one is the movement, per se. Right. The the saying Black Lives Matter, which was, you know, widely accepted. You know, I accepted it. Of course, Black Lives Matter. I'm black myself. Um, So it was easy for me to get along with that. Um, but for me, the more that I got around the movement and had conversations with people that were a part of it was the more that I kind of, you know, slightly distanced myself from it because of the tone and the rhetoric of what people were saying. Um, from my eyes looking in, it wasn't just about uh, creating change. It was about some kind of you know, revolution in a sense. Um, and when it came from the organization standpoint, uh, you know, just learning about the organization, learning about what they stand for, the things that, you know, even that they had on the website, stuff like that. It was apparent to me that, you know, this may not be an organization that I want to align myself with or support um, just because of what they believe. And, and I I didn't believe early on that true change was going to come through an organization, a party, a movement, you know, something like that. I, I knew for myself um, in my own life that it was the gospel that could truly change the hearts of men and heal the divide between white and black individuals. I want to go back to the, to the standing for the anthem for a minute, because it, it, the photograph that everyone knows now, that's where you are the only 
guy on your team that is standing and you're not wearing the BLM t-shirt and, and I, the, um, the bravery that that required, I, I can only imagine. So in now it's been a while. That was 2020. Here we are talking in 2023. How many teammates? Not, yeah. Not to cut you off, but I even have to say, you know, you know, you said it, but people really don't understand how, how difficult, um, or really just how tense that moment was. Like I had, you know, I had had that team meeting with my teammates beforehand. So they knew what I was going to do. Um, I remember being on the phone with my pastor the night before and I'm telling him, Hey, look, um, I haven't signed my contract yet. Um, I don't think you understand how crazy this is going to be. I know I'm going to be name called. I know I'm going to be this. I'm going to be that. Uh, this is going to be wild. It's going to be everywhere. And he, he said to me, you cannot stand for God and God not stand for you. And that was kind of that like mic drop moment that like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go through with it. But it was, it was extremely tense. Everyone, um, not, not, not just from the standpoint of people wanting to do this, but people felt the pressure. People felt the pressure of this is something that we have to do. And that was one of the things that made it, um, you know, hard for me to get on board with because it went from like a symbol to a command uh, that this is what you had to do in order to be down with black people, to be down with the movement. Um, and I just felt like I had a different solution, like, you know, you know, f- freedom in a sense, you know, you guys are free to do what you want to do and make the decision to kneel or do what you want to do. But I, I want that same respect in return because I have a different solution and that's okay. And so that's all. And, and how would you describe the res- what you did get in return from your teammates, from fans, from other players? How, what, what kind of respect did you receive? Well, t- teammates was tough um, because, uh, I, you know, I, I understood the, I would say just, again, how, how crazy the moment was. You know, I had several teammates who were very, very involved in the movement, you know, going to protest, you know, the whole nine. And so, um, you know, a lot of them were upset and we had a, we had a team meeting afterwards. Um, and, you know, we, we kind of, we kind of went at it and, you know, they had their things to say. I had my things to say. And, uh, there was conversation of, you know, I'm not going to go out there anymore because I don't want to be next to you standing and stuff like that. Uh, but my position was, look, I, I respected your decision, um, to kneel. And I just asked for that same respect in return. And, but it was, it was difficult. It was a really difficult time, um, to kind of work through and then getting injured and having to leave the bubble. But I will say, as time has passed, a lot of those conversations that I had with the guys in that room um, has changed to, you know, a, a better standing today. Um, I had a conversation with a teammate that asked me, "Would knowing what you know now, would you take the same stance that you did? And I said, man, 100%, I would do the same thing. And then I asked him the same question. And he said, you know, I would have handled it differently. You know, as tensions have kind of died down, I, I could see that I was very emotionally invested um, and everything that was going on. And now as, you know, things about Black Lives Matter has come out about the way that they've yeah. handled their camp. Um, you know, he was like, I, I would have did things differently and I would have approached the situation differently. And so, yeah. So things have evolved. I, I can I can only imagine. Um, I, I mean, you know, I, and you're right. It did turn from a suggestion, hey, join us to a command. And a lot of people felt a great deal of pressure, whether you were black, whether you were white. Pers- for, for black people, I'm sure it was far more pressure. But certainly everyone felt this pressure to take on this, to, to stand with this movement. And it did become a uh, sort of commandment. But your your take on all of this is interesting because it's it, it has to do not only with faith, but with the country. Um, with It seems to me you you don't hate the United States, do you? 
<laughs> no, not not at all. Um, not at all. I mean, it, I'm I'm blessed to to be here and to be able to do what I do for a living. You know, which is play basketball. Um, it's you know, for for me, it's it's hard to you know, with knowing who where we are now and the progress that we've made. Um, it's hard to look back and judge. Um, you know, the people that have come before us that have helped create change and make change, and even some of the people that have done you know the wrong. Um, even though what they what they did was wrong, it was a different time, it was a different period, and we've progressed um, to where we are today. And so for me, my, my pastor says it like this all the time when it comes to who we are as individuals. He says, we haven't done everything right, but we haven't done everything wrong either. Right. And for me, that's, that, that, is the, that is the perspective that I take when it comes to America. Absolutely not has America, has she done everything right, but she hasn't done everything wrong either. The fact that we are where we are today is because of the principles that this country was founded on. And we've done a better job of living up to them. But if they weren't there in the first place, we would have never gotten to where we are today. And so that's where I'm at. Um, I try my best to kind of, you know, lead that. And, and that, that'll be the, the message that I instill to, to my daughter and my future kids, um, that we're blessed to be a part of this nation and we can be a part of making it better. Um, but it's not terrible. I am so impressed with you. I'm so thrilled that you made time for us because I, I just think what you've done. I mean, I just there's a there needs to be more courage in this world right now. And you are a shining example of that on so many levels. And so I just want to amplify that. I want people to know that that you're out there and there are others like you. And 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 so they, people can wear the Unitas and they'll be showing off that they are standing with Jonathan Isaac. Um, yeah, can't wait to <laughs> can't wait to see it all flourish, man. Congratulations. Um, thank you so much for your time. And we're going to be watching the NBA season. You stay healthy. Thank you so much, Michelle. I appreciate it. All right. He is Jonathan Isaac. I'm Michelle Tafoya. As always, as I say every time, be brave like he was and is. And do good like he's doing. Thanks for listening.